Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. This is a podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is Todd Hicksonball, a.k.a. the Todd Father. Caleb, guess what? What? what right now, like when we're recording this episode, yeah. the Cavs are doing really well, and I'm excited about it. Yes, I'm from Ohio. At me. Well, I'm also excited to watch the Cavs because they're, they're more watchable now. Totally, totally agree. And we are just as excited, as much as we're excited for the Cavs and how well they're doing, we're also really excited for this episode that we're bringing to you today. Today we are talking with Becky Moreland, who is the director of Rahab Ministries. So Becky um, is, actually she's local, so she's from Akron. Uh, their, their organization is in Akron, and so for us that's, that's local. Uh, and they do phenomenal work, and so they work with... Um, women uh, is, is their, their clientele, but they work with women who have been displaced, who have been um, in human trafficking, yep. sex which, trafficking. which could include prostitution, sex trafficking, or um, uh, abuse situations um, of every variety that you can imagine. And so they do work with, with women um, who, who, who are, are, are in those types of situations. They do uh, a lot of things with uh, working with women in the jail systems, so they have a whole kind of branch that does and, and does that kind of stuff. So they do a lot of different, um, a lot of different things that, that that pertain to that. So they do a wonderful, wonderful work. Honestly, we're really excited to bring you this conversation with Becky. But before we do that, we have our weekly segment called the Learners Corner Podcast Recommended Resource of the Week. So Todd, I know that you've been learning about something pretty cool lately. What are you learning right now? So I have actually talked about this resource before, um, but it's a new episode. So it's the right. So it's the Free to Lead podcast. Stephen Brewster, Troy Maxwell. Yeah, um, we've had we've had them on the podcast yep, before. Tr- Troy was a couple of weeks ago, and Stephen was back in the summer of 2000, um, 2017. Yep, and we'll link to those episodes if you want yep. to learn more from them. And and so the the resource of the week um, is an episode that came out. I believe it was this week's episode. Um, and it was on anxiety. And so they talked about anxiety and how it plays into leadership and just our ability to function in the professional world. And it was a phenomenal resource um, because it's uh, they talk about how it's, it's kind of the thing that nobody ta- wants to talk about in the workplace. And, and so it was an interesting conversation. I, I just learned a lot from it. Uh, one of the, I think one of the big takeaways I would say I got from it was that even though nobody wants to talk about it, it still needs to be talked about. Which that sounds so like, duh, but when you really kind of get into the weeds of anxiety and depression, especially as it comes, you know, with your, with, you know, our, perf- we're getting a report card, right? Like we have a report card, like, Hey, you're doing your job. You're not doing your job. Um, you know, th- that's something that we don't want to talk about at work because then people think that we're weak or people think that we are, you know, damaged or that we're not good enough at our, at what we do or whatever, the litany of things. Um, and so, yeah, great, great resource. Go check that out. Um, I, I'm not sure of the episode number, but it's on the Freely podcast. You can check that out on iTunes. Either way, just check it out on the show notes and you can find it. Now, speaking of things that we need to talk about, but most people don't want to talk about. Oh, yeah. We have a great conversation with Becky Moreland talking about prostitution, human trafficking, and the recovery, pro- the recovery process and everything that goes into it as well. And so without further ado, we're going to jump into our conversation with Becky Moreland. 
Well, Becky, thanks so much for joining the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you guys calling me up and asking me to do this. So most of our audience may not be familiar with Rahab Ministries. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Rahab and kind of what you do? Okay, great. Rahab Ministries began 15 years ago this month. We just celebrated 15 years. And we started out by just walking the streets of Akron, Ohio, and talking to the women that we would find out there on a Friday night and engaging in conversation, relationship building. And it was about three or four of us at the time, just going out there and handing them a little piece of paper with my phone number on it and asking if they're okay, if we can pray for them, if there's anything they need. And that was the beginning 15 years ago. And it started out that small, just a few hours on a Friday night. And it, it just continually over the 15 years grew from walking the streets to then going into the strip clubs to meet the women. Then we would go into the uh, correctional facilities in our area. We would have Bible studies with them there. And then we went into uh, opening a little drop-in center in East Akron. So we just kept evolving over 15 years. But it started out very small, very one-on-one, -on -one, very relational. Mm -hmm. So tell us about um you know what what made what made you want to get rahab ministry started was there a specific moment or something that happened that occurred it was a specific challenge there was a, a dear friend of mine and she still is that approached me after being in church with her for about a year and she said becky you need to do something to give back a little bit uh and she said i want you to spend some time praying about it and i want you to bring me a vision so I did exactly what she said, and I recall hearing a message on radio of a ministry in Chicago that was walking the streets of Chicago and ministering to the women out there that were being prostituted. And it's not really my story. That's not my background, my history. Obviously, I was in muck and mire and sin and everything else, but not in that way. Mm -hmm. So I went to Chicago, and I, I followed these people. They were wonderful. They welcomed me in. And I went back to Ohio and I wrote up this great plan and I said, here, this is what I want to do. She looked at me like I was nuts, but uh, it was the beginning of Rahab and it started out very slow and it was just something that I knew God wanted me to do. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about, um, you know, what, what specifically does Rahab Ministries do to help women, you know, recover from like sex trafficking and stuff like that? Right. Right. There's a lot of specifics that we do, and it didn't always look that way. As I said, it evolved that way. Uh, let me just kind of back up a little, if I may. Mm -hmm. About five years ago, somebody approached me and said, you've been working on the streets and in strip clubs and all of this, working with these women for 10 years. What are you going to do about human trafficking? Because it really became quite a buzzword. And so everybody kept looking to me like, what are you going to do, Becky? And I kept saying nothing. I'm pretty busy right now. My plate's full. And I found all kinds of ways to uh, weasel out of that, that uh, commitment. But then what happened was I saw a documentary. It was called Nefarious, which, if you don't know, means wicked because I did not know that's what it meant. So I watched this documentary, and it was about human trafficking. And it talked about it all over the world. And then the very end, it came back and talked about what that looks like in the United States. And I watched that documentary and went, dear Lord, the women that we are meeting in all the places I've mentioned are the victims of human trafficking. Because what happens is in the United States, women getting involved into this life do so between the ages of 12 and 13. The average age is about 12. Mm -hmm. 
And I went back to a lot of the women that I had known over the years. And I said, would you feel comfortable telling me your story? I really want to hear your story. And I sat down with many of the women and I can tell you 100% of them at some point in their life had been trafficked in terms of coercion, fraud, manipulation, and sold for sex. And then as they got older and older and older, that's the only life they knew. And then their trafficker, what they might refer to as their boyfriend, disappears and goes after a young girl again. And then these women are left with nothing. They're addicted to drugs. They have no um, education. They have no life skills. And then they're stuck in these low-end strip clubs or walking the streets, whatever they can do to make ends meet or to feed their addiction. So I don't even remember your question, Kayla, but that's I, just the way it is. We, there is no difference between human trafficking and prostitution. And that's why I was called into what I was called into. Mecca, those actually kind of leads into the next thing that we wanted to talk to you about, which is there, there is this perception or this idea um, that, that women choose this lifestyle of prostitution. Like, you ch they chose this, but actually, in many cases, that that is just not how it is. Talk to us about um, why why this isn't for a lot of them a decision that they do. I mean, you just said that 100 percent of them, at some point, they have been trafficked. Like, right. like talk to us about that idea that this is a choice, and then talk to us a little bit more about um, just the actual reality of what's going on. Okay, yeah, point. I can tell you that. Little girls at 12, 13 years old never say, when I grow up, I want to be a prostitute. They don't say in strip clubs, I really want to stand up there and get undressed for these men for a few bucks a night. That's not a choice that they made. The choice was made for them. And they have run out of hope, so they feel like they've had no choice. And that could be from a lot of different things going up in their life. So when we finally meet them. And I can tell you after 15 years of doing this, nobody's come to me and said, look at me. I made it as a prostitute or I made it as a stripper. And I was able to pay my bills and buy a house and raise a family. It's never happened. And I can tell you that it's a very generational um, type of bondage that these women get into. So if they grow up in poverty or they grow up in dysfunctional homes, and it's not just poverty, we have women from very, very affluent neighborhoods that are also part of rehab because they've been trafficked. But when they grow up neglected, abandoned, low self-esteem, and they, people have come along, pimps, traffickers, boyfriends, johns, whatever you want to call them, they come along and they rescue these girls that feel like they have no other hope. And it's so easy for them to be swayed and to be caught up in this whole life. Uh, and it happens quickly. And I will tell you that they probably never see it coming. So what it looks like for us when we meet the women is they've already been uh, through so many traumatic incidences over their life that they feel like that's all they have. That's the only hope they have in life. And then we come along and we're trying to tell them, no, there is more hope. There is more that you can have. There is a chance for you to have a life back. And that's not an easy transition. A lot of the women that we see have gone through something we call trauma bonding or Stockholm syndrome. You might've heard of that. Mm -hmm. And they are psychologically bonded to their trafficker. And they also will never ever say, I'm a victim of human trafficking. They will not self-identify. So we come in very cautiously and carefully and prayerfully to be able to come alongside these women. And when they say, but I love my boyfriend, 
our response is, well, tell me more about what you loved about him. It's not like, oh, no, he's not your boyfriend. Run, get away from him, because then we're just going to ward them off. So it's a very long-term marathon of when we are able to help these women to get healing that they need and to be able to become actual citizens and have a new life in Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, most of our audience is probably not familiar with like a culture of prostitution, but can you tell us, like, tell us or describe it to us? Because most of our audience just doesn't understand or doesn't know. So what do most people not know about it that you think that they should? Okay. That prostitution is not something they chose. Prostitution is usually wrapped up in a whole lot of other areas in life, such as drugs, uh, such as uh, poverty. Um, I can tell you that in the state of Ohio, that there's about 1,200 missing children at a given time. And those children, 92% of them will be trafficked. It will be picked up by a trafficker. So if you have, think about a rebellious teenager. could be any of us, right? I know I was at one point. And they're mad. I'm, I hate you, mom and dad, and I'm going to run away. And it could be something as simple as that. And they run away. They get picked up by a, a guy that says, I understand. Your parents are mean. Um, they are so well-versed in being able to be very uh, charismatic and loving boyfriends. And they will take the side of the girl every time and explain to the girl why she shouldn't be with her parents and why they're mean. And you don't have to follow their rules and come with me and I can show you something much better. So the world of, and the culture of prostitution is a very slow burn. It's like you put that lobster in the pot of warm water and slowly bring it to a boil. And they don't realize until it's too late that they can't get out. They're stuck. They find no way out. Uh, and, and they most often will, when we get them, run away again and go back to what they know. Mm-hmm. It's their only source of, of comfort, I guess, is all they know. Did that answer that? It, it, it does. And so that, that actually does lead to the, to the next thing with, with this culture. For one, let's start here. Um, talk to us more about this culture because I think – I think that there is just ignorance going on about, you know, what's going on. And, and, and so I've, I, I've really done a lot of, of looking into this. And, and, and for a lot of them, you, you talked about this, the lobster or the crab that's, or the frog even that's in the, that's in the pot and the water's rising. But, and you talked about the drugs. And this is a major, major way that these women are trapped is, is through the drugs. Talk to us more about the culture of, of drug use and how they're manipulated to, into staying. Right. This point, they are manipulated. Let me give you an example. There's uh, one young lady that we had. We mentor all the minor victims. So we get them when they're 11, 12, 13 years old and on up. And she, she was dating an older boyfriend, which is very common. If you see an 11-year-old with a 25-year-old, there's a huge red flag. So she's dating this guy, and she thinks, you know, he's all that in a bag of chips, and then he introduces her to maybe a little bit of crack. It's not that big a deal, maybe a little bit of marijuana. And then eventually she's kind of hooked onto the drug a little bit, or she's liking it. And he he might go to her and say something like, you know what, just this one time I need a little favor. Uh, We're running a little short on cash, and I really want to get you some good stuff, or I really want to take you to a nice dinner, buy you a nice dress, whatever. He could use all kinds of things. And would you just this one time do this as a favor? 
And so, of course, you know, she's going to sleep with this other guy, and the other guy's going to give her boyfriend some money. They're going to go out and get a whole bunch of really good dope. And, and that's the beginning of it. Or That's one scenario we've seen. Another scenario we've seen is a young girl that was um, – she was just wined and dined by this good-looking guy, and she kind of fell for it, and he – convinced her to have sex and she did and she, he videoed it the whole time did not she did not know that and then he shows her says i need to do something else for me or your youth pastor is going to see this video so there's a lot of that kind of blackmail that comes on or the threat could be um i know where you live i know where your little brother gets off the school bus and they will use anything they're very well versed there's books you can buy all over the place amazon is Pimping 101, the pimp Bible, you can learn how to be a good pimp. It's all about economics. So these girls are just so unaware of all that, that it, it's just a very slow, tedious process. And then when these guys are done with them and they dump them because they're has-beens, they're still hooked on the drug. And so when we get them, they're coming in from you know heroin and crack and, and meth and everything else. Um, so it's all tied in, it's all linked in, and it's a great way for these guys to get these girls hooked. Another thing that they will do besides getting them hooked on drugs is they will mix up their days and their nights. So they keep them just really in a fog most of the time, or they might let them sleep for like 45 minutes after they've worked for 14 hours, and then they'll shake them until they wake them up. So they're all constantly keeping them in a state of chaos and fog. They totally have total control over these girls. And that's the culture, right? So uh, one of the one of the things that that I, I I've heard is people saying, "Well, why don't they reach out? Why don't they Why don't they reach out and tell somebody? Or why don't they they do this?" Um, and it goes back to this idea of hope. What keeps these women um, from embracing hope and reaching out? There's a, there's a whole lot to be said about why didn't she just run away? And I recall hearing a, a woman that was a survivor. And somebody asked her that, and she said, what makes you think I didn't try? What makes you think? And her story was just so bizarre. She would go into a hotel room because she was made to go there for the date. And then she, at one point, had gotten back into her car, and she was trying to hide money. Like she was tucking it in the hem of her jeans so that her boyfriend wouldn't find it so that she could find a way to escape. And... So she, uh, I think she was in the hotel room or something. The guy called. And he said, where are you? And she said, I'm in the car. I'm in the car. I'm on my way. He said, good, blow the horn. And she couldn't because she wasn't in the car. And when he did get his hands on her, he just beat her to a pulp. So there are, there are times that they do try to actually run away. And when they get caught, they know that the punishment's worse. That's one scenario. The other scenario is... Um, they have this psychological bondage, and, and so they feel like they have to—you don't need physical chains. It's a psychological chain that keeps these girls there. They don't feel like they deserve to have anything different. They don't feel worthy to be able to have a different kind of life. This is just what God's handed them, and it's the way that life is going to be forever and ever. Amen. Um and it's really hard for them when, when we finally have the opportunity to talk to them, for them to even know that there is such a thing as hope. And one of the things that we ask the women when they come into our residential house, when they first get there, we were asking, well, tell us some of your goals. What are you passionate about? And they can't answer that. They have, they have no idea. They don't know. They've never had the opportunity to even explore 
what they might love or what they may like. And they don't have the opportunity to finish high school most of the time. They don't even know what they're good at. So we have to start from a clean slate and work with them one little day at a time and hope that they get the healing they need and start learning more. And we, so we expose them to a lot of different things, you know, like art or exercise or horseback riding to kind of find out what they do like. They have no idea. So we want to move in a, in a slightly different direction now and begin to look at the other side. So you just talked about, you know, cult, the culture really that's being permeating. We wanted to talk a little bit about the recovery process. And, and one of the things that I, I've had several people who have worked for your organization and also um, I just know of other people who are kind of in this world working. And, and one of the things that they talk about often is this, um, this, this cyclical process that recovery is. Uh, is. It's, so it's cyclical rather than linear. So it's not like she comes out of this life and there's one, two, three things that she does and she's back. It's cyclical. And it, she is a lot of times, like you said, they, they're going back into this lifestyle and then they're coming back out and it's just cycle. Um, talk to us about the recovery process and why it's more cyclical than linear. Well, it's been said through research that it takes an average of seven times for the, for the girl to finally stay out of it. So they get out and and then they go through this honeymoon phase where everything might look good for a minute. I'm having some good food. And then all of a sudden, they have to start thinking about their own thoughts. Because when we have them at the safe house, it's very quiet. It's in 30-some acres of nowhere land. And they don't have connection with their boyfriend. Um, they don't have the drug. They don't have the concrete jungle they're used to. And we're trying to help them to learn to sleep at night and be awake during the day and start counseling. So this is all foreign to them. And all they know is this guy loves me. Yeah, sure, he hits me when I don't behave, but he tells me he loves me. And so she's going to go back just one more time and see if it's going to really be true. And she keeps going back, and it takes seven on the average of seven times. So when we have a girl leave us from the safe house, uh, she might be gone for a day or a week, and then generally we'll get a call, and they realize that's that's not where I want to be. Can I come back? And we're very grace-oriented. Yes, of course, you can come back. And that may happen four, five, six, seven times. Now, we have certain rules and boundaries. You can't just make it a flop house, right? But they just they just almost like have to keep going through some of these hard knocks until they can say, okay, this really isn't, but we we're there to plant the seeds and then somebody else might water it and then somebody else might see it grow. So it's a very, um, just a very, I guess, like you said, cyclical thing where they just finally are getting out of that wheel and they're no longer on the hamster wheel and they finally get settled down with us, hopefully. So let's do a hypothetical just so that people could kind of understand what you're trying to do throughout this recovery process. So let's say it is linear. Um, I know that we've just talked about how it isn't, but what are the steps that you're trying to do and, and how, what are you trying to do to help the, the women? Um, you know, you talked about counseling, but what are, what are you trying to do? What's the goal? How are you, do, how are you doing this? Okay. So we have a, a little drop-in center in East Africa. So we get a lot of the women that come there that are already in correctional facilities. They come to us three or four or five times a week for just different services. It could be clothes, it could be hygiene products, it could be Bible study, it could be food, whatever. So that's our first touch, all right? So let's say, and this has happened, uh, that one of the women that come there four or five times a week is starting to get 
to the point where she's getting released from the correctional facility. She has nowhere to go. And I was there one day, and I just happened to be talking to the group of women. And I had my hands on the shoulders of one of the women, just because I'm a touchy-feely person. I said, is this okay? And she said, sure. And I'm just telling them about our safe house and what it looks like and how long they can stay, what kind of services we offer. And she approached me after she was done eating. She said, I might be a candidate for that house. Maybe you were talking to me. So fast forward, we, she gets released. We bring her to the safe house. She's there for, I don't even know, it was probably close to a year that she actually stayed. But it was one little step at a time. Our hope is that they will um, get into counseling, that we will help them with her. And we did this with her. We helped her with her legal issues. Um, they have probation. They have fines they have to pay. Uh, so we try to walk with them through every little step so that they can finally start seeing a shred of hope. Because they see, oh, my gosh, I owe the court $1,800 just to get a driver's license. I can't ever pay that back. So why bother trying? So we come alongside them, and, I, and most often than not, I'd say 95% of the time, they come to us without a birth certificate, uh, driver's license, um, any kind of photo ID, anything, because the, the boyfriends will take that from them. So we work with her and we get that for her. We get her on Medicaid or whatever insurance we can get her on. We slowly get her into um, some counseling. Now she's got some medical issues. She's got some dental issues. We work with her on that. So we're very holistic. And so as she's learning to live life on life's terms and what that looks like in, in our world, she's also being fed the word and she's also learning how to grow and it's a very slow gentle loving process with all of them so she finally came to the point where she wanted to get a job so after you've been there for six months i believe it is then you could start applying for a job so she got a job and she we're still we're, we're transporting her uh and then she got kept getting um promoted within her job and now she is a store manager she's doing great and she's living on her own and she's got um her license back and she's got her family back and she's making good money and now she's also working at another facility on the weekends as a house mom which is really great because she used to really rag on our house mom you know and give her a hard time but now you are the house mom so this is this is like the best case scenario um and we just stay in touch with her we're family we're family. And same thing with another lady that was with us for a long time. She finally figured she's got a love for cooking and a love for children. And we were able to send her to an orphanage in Haiti for a missions trip, which is something she never thought she'd be able to do. So our hope is that they grow, they get confident, they are clean, they are restored um, in all ways imaginable. And yet they still stay connected with Rahab because we are always going to be their family. So I think I, the thing you said, by the way, that was really fascinating to me, and it's something I didn't even fully comprehend until you said it, is the legal side of things. So talk to us more about the legal piece, because I think at least what I was thinking of is, you know, hey, this is about helping them get off of the drugs. This is about them get, getting off out of the lifestyle. But there really are some roadblocks that have to be that have to be worked through. So uh, for 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 you guys as a ministry uh, with with Rahab, like what is your relationship with the legal side of this thing and what are what are the things that you do? Like like how are you doing this? Okay. Can I just share right before we started talking, I had a voicemail from a law enforcement officer that's with Homeland Security. And he called said, Becky, I just want to give you some good news. I just had to share it with somebody. And he had just today 
was able to rescue two 16-year-old girls that were being trafficked, and they were just about to be sent on to Detroit. And he managed to get in there in the nick of time and pull both the girls out into safety. So we work very closely with law enforcement. We work very closely with the FBI. Um, we have a lot of wonderful relationships with probation officers and judges. And so when we when they have to go to court because they've got a warrant for something, we will go with them and we will be their court support. And so a lot of the people within, I'm talking about adults mostly right now, a lot of people within the court system are very familiar with rehab. And most often than not, they will say things like, all right, we know you're in a safe place. So we will touch base with your caseworker and we'll work things out. So there's times when we've had women just do jobs around the house. We have therapy animals, my goats, they're awesome. So if one of the girls might do goat duty for two weeks and they'll knock down their fines. So we get creative and however we can, we try to think of different ways to be creative. Now on the other side of things with the minors, we work very closely with the, with the courts in, in Summit County. We are the mentoring piece for all the victims that come through Summit County Juvenile Court. So we're very connected that way. So, but there are a lot of legal ramifications. And sometimes you think you just get one of them taken care of in one county, and another county pops up and go, oh, well, they have a misdemeanor warrant over here, so we got to run over to that county and do the same thing all over again. So it's a long process. Sure. You know, one thing that I was just thinking about is, are there any identifying signs? You know, I could just think of, you know, like to be able to tell if someone in your life is maybe st like starting down that path of trafficking. Are there any identifying signs? I know you said that one was, you know, if there's an 11-year-old hanging out with a 25-year-old, that might be one. Are there any others? Yes, there's a lot of them. It's a good question because that comes up a lot too. And we had one young girl that was rescued by Homeland Security when the RNC was here in our, our area. Mm -hmm. And she had a very big identifiable tattoo. It's called branding. So the the traffickers will brand their girls. So you might see um, a guy's name on somebody's face. You might see the word daddy tattooed on them. You might see a barcode. We've seen that. Um, so unusual tattoos are one indicator. Um, you might see a girl that you know at school, maybe if you have a, a niece or a little sister, that is all of a sudden becoming very truant. There's a red flag there if she's truant. There's also um, girls that if you're talking to that will never give you eye contact, you know, because she's not allowed to. Uh, you can be looking for things like that, especially if you're going into like Starbucks or the library or um, the bus stops or you know, any of the, the malls, any of those things. If you see one, one lady that one day she's in rags, and the next day she's in Prada, there's a big red flag because they're going to dress them up good. And, um, so there's a lot of those kind of red flags that we look for. And then what I tell people all the time, and I know people kind of hesitate, uh, call, call the local FBI. There's an office in Akron. There's one in Cleveland. They're, they're all over. And they have trained task forces in identifying human trafficking victims. And I've worked with them enough to know that they don't want you to try to figure it out. Just call them. Give them as much information as you can and let them figure it out because that's what they do. Um, we had one lady that was being trafficked into a, a hair salon. That's a big hotbed for victims because their traffickers want them to look the best. And she couldn't speak English and she, the boyfriend dropped her off and 
gave all these demands. I wanted to look like this, this, and this. So it was a lot of red flags. And um, so the, the owner of the salon is also a friend of mine. So she knew a little bit about trafficking. And so she called the FBI guy and she said the trafficker was driving a, a car with a um, Georgia li license plate. And he said, well, on the license plate was the peaches or oranges. And she panicked because they were very similar. He goes, so was it Georgia or was it Florida? So those are kind of things like if you're in the moment, it's hard to really figure out. So you let them do their job. But I just told her, I said, you know, there's plenty of distractions in the salon. Maybe somebody could take a picture of the license plate. That way you don't have to wonder, is it, a, is it orange or is it a peach? So there's, but call them, call them and let them do it. But, you know, try to document as much as you can without putting yourself in risk, obviously. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of back to the recovery process. Are there any commonalities that you've seen for people who end up like recovering and reentering society? common traits that they have such like are there are there some things that that you're seeing that either need to be built into a person like you this is something we need to build up in them or um just things that you see that 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 are in people traits qualities that are in people that that tend to lend more towards successful re-entering of society well a lot of it a lot of it just comes right down to do they want it i mean do they are they are they hungry for this are they thirsty for this um because if they, they they come to us thinking they're worthless and they're stupid and they can never get past the math portion of the GED, they're just going to keep giving up. And my mom always told me I was stupid, you know, whatever is going on in them. So we see a lot of that. And then once in a while, you might see someone come in that's really sharp and really on task and really ready to go. And she set the great example for the others. So if, if they're in the house, in, in our safe house, she might, there's a great, great deal of peer counseling going on, which is amazing. Two of our staff people came out of the life. So, you know, when they can always go to the girls and say, yeah, I, I hear you. I know what that's like. I felt that hopelessness before when I was being beaten and raped and held at gunpoint on the streets. So there's that commonality there where they can help each other. Um, but I think it's just getting to the point of letting them know and believe that they are worth more and that they can do this. And we've had some great communication with some um, corporations in our area to say we will hire and help them because the jobs are almost impossible because they all have felonies and so they don't have any work histories they have no work history and they and they could be and they could be 22 23 24 years old right with no job history or any of that what do you mean I have to show up at eight o'clock every day? I'll be there at 10. You know, so there's a whole lot of life skills training. There was a girl that uh, I was having these little luncheons at the safe house, trying to teach my life skills stuff for them. And so we had a group of people coming in. One was a pastor. So I'm standing next to the girl and I'm trying to teach her a little bit about hospitality. And I said, oh, offer to take his coat. And she leaned over and she said, why would I steal his coat? <laughs> I go, no, 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 hang it up in the closet. <laughs> so we know that's our baseline. You know, they just have no idea, most of them. Now, some of them, that's not their story. But for them to sit down around a table and have real dishes, real silverware and a glass glass and pass food around and have conversation, totally foreign to most of them. We speak over and over. Talk, talk to us about the, the role, because it seems like it continues to go back to this. Talk to us about the role that hope plays um, in, in the recovery process and in, in really getting out of this lifestyle. Talk to us about hope. 
without hope, obviously there's, there's there's no place for them to go. But we define hope differently maybe than most. Um, if we have a girl that, that comes in and um, hasn't seen her child for um, six months mm. or a year, and then all of a sudden we are allowing her to write a little letter and we'll make sure that we mail it for her. And maybe we'll get a picture of that child. A little teeny piece of shred of hope for them goes a long, long way. Um, being able to reunite them with a, a loved one as long as they're safe. So we're really the go-between for them in the little tiny um, ways that we can show them hope. And then it just starts to mushroom. And it could be uh, in our drop-in center when a girl hasn't had crack for 24 hours we're you know hooting and hollering and celebrating and giving her that hope and let's go for another 24 hours or whatever it might be it's it's very minute in our case because it takes just one little piece i i think in my own life if i had really nothing to look forward to at the end of the day and it could be maybe visiting my grandchildren it could be something doesn't you know what if you had none of that what if the only thing you had to look forward to is another beating or being raped again or being shot or stabbed? That's their hope. So if we can give that just a little tiny piece of hope, it doesn't take much. Um, I take my dog out to the safe house periodically, and I did that today. And there's a young lady there that's really been through a lot, a lot of trauma. And I don't think she has ever met my dog. And he's a therapy dog. And we were out there today, and I'm talking to some people. And I look over, and there's my dog on the floor, and her whole body is draped over that dog, just holding him like it was a lifeline. And for her, that was hope. So it doesn't take, you know, a big, ginormous, oh, yeah, you're going to go to college and marry a rich man and have, you know, a big house and a bunch of kids. That's not their hope. Their hope is somebody loves me. Somebody loves me today. Somebody loves me enough to put their arms around me. Somebody loves me enough to feed me. So that's their hope. Mm -hmm. And that's what we offer. You know, what can, you know, I'm just thinking of like the friends and the family of the, of the women who, who are recovering, you know, that maybe they've come out of your program and they're good and reacclimated to society. What can friends and family do to help? So, well, let's first assume that friends and family are yes, safe. They are safe. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because that's not often the case, mm -hmm. but we have, um, we have women that are getting letters in the mail all the time from friends and family. And so we are able to intercept those, make sure they're safe, make sure they're healthy, and we can help them there. Now we have a lady that's been with us for, she told me today, 15 months, I think, and she's just a phenomenal. She's never had a good relationship with her mother, but she also has two little children that her mother has custody of. So through her course of healing and going into counseling, we've invited mom into the counseling sessions. So mom has been agreeing to come into counseling. So now mom's getting healthy. So now we've got this whole family unit that's never been healthy. We have mom, we have our girl, and we have the two little children. And now she's spending weekends with them after a year and a half. Now she's able to go spend weekends. So it, it's a very slow process. But if you can show forgiveness of your loved one, if you can allow them back into your life in a very small way, you're going to give them a lot of hope. Um, we love to see families reunited, provided safe all the way around. Mm -hmm. So that's important. Yeah. What have been maybe one or two lessons that you've learned in your time leading Rahab Ministries? 
lessons. <laughs> I can write a whole book on what not to do. Um, that you're in this for the long haul, but if you're not healthy, like for myself, um, being the founder, I mean, I got to see this thing birth and grow, but if you're just coming into rehab cold after it's been around for 15 years and you're not prepared to have your time with the Lord and to hear from him and to, and to take care of yourself, um, then you're going to burn out in a very short time. And I, I learned that the hard way, you know, obviously I, I, I did everything to begin with and then I was exhausted, but I have learned that if I do nothing but sit at the feet of my savior, then I've, I've done a lot because that will automatically go into your work day. It will automatically spill out around everybody year round. So if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be any help to us. Does that make sense? Yep. Um, so that's been a huge, huge thing for us. So, you know, as, as we wrap up, you know, what would it take? And I, this is a big question, so we won't hold you to your answer. Um, but what would it take or what would it look like to help end uh, sex slavery in Akron, Ohio? <laughs> I love that question. Um, let me tell you just a quick little story. I was speaking at a church a few years ago, and uh, there was a group of us speaking on human trafficking. And there was a guy that came up to speak, and I'd never met him before, didn't know anything about him, except that he was a detective in another county. And his job was to investigate all child sex abuse cases, which I can't even imagine having to do that. And so he's up there speaking, and he's talking about trafficking and children and all this. And, um, and somebody from the audience said, what can we do about the boys or about the men that are buying these girls? And he said, I'll tell you what to do. And he just got really adamant, and he said, you raise these little boys up to be godly men, and we will no longer have human trafficking. And I didn't know, I didn't know, first of all, that he was a believer, you know, so I just want to run up there and hug him and, and kiss him. But he's right. We've got to, we've got to, as a church, as family, we've got to go and, and take our neighbor's little boy out to Boy Scouts or something if they don't have a father in the house. We've got to get hands-on involved in families that are dysfunctional, that are in trouble. Uh, and that's, it's going to take all of us. It's going to take all the church to come around these families and these kids and these women. If we can take these 11 and 12 year olds and help them to get out of their situation of trafficking and help them to have a new life and a strong life and a, and a good life, then their children are not going to be stuck in this. And their children, we're changing generations. And I went to the detention center for the kids about a year ago. And I, and I don't usually do that, but I intentionally went there. I said, look, sweetheart, you're the fourth generation I have lived through that's been in this. And we want to get you out. And that's what it's going to take. It's getting these kids educated, getting the parents educated, going into schools and talking about it and not pretending it's not happening. It's happening everywhere in our schools. And if without awareness and without us rolling up our sleeves and all doing this fight together, it won't end. But we can end it. We certainly can. I'm a little passionate about that. Can you tell? <laughs> I'm like falling out of my seat here. <laughs> well, Becky, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. If people want to learn more about Rahab Ministries or get involved, how can they do that? Um, all you do is go to our website, rahab-ministries.org, 
and it's R-A-H-A-B, rahab-ministries.org, or you can call our office at 330-819-3326. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. You're welcome. That was a great conversation that we had with Becky. And just as we were saying earlier, it's a conversation that most people don't talk about a lot, but that's what we want to do here on the first Corner. We want to continue to bring topics and subjects and things that you may not normally hear about or perspectives that you may not normally hear about because it's in listening to those that we learn the most from them. So Todd, you know, what was one of the things that really stood out to you from our conversation with Becky? Two major things. Uh, the first one was um, the heart that it takes um, to just step into people's world messy. Uh, my mom and I talk about that all the time where um, you know, a lot of times when, when, when things have happened in your life, uh, people look at you as you're too much, you're too whatever. And so uh, the major thing that I learned is, uh, one of the major things I learned is um, it takes a person, um, a, a person with, with a, uh, an eye for, for seeing that, be able to, to, to show, like the, the, to be able to have the heart to be able to step into their world and kind of deal with, uh, deal with the mess. The, the second thing that, that I learned is everybody can, I think that was huge. Um, everybody has the ability to to be able to uh, be on the lookout, even if it's just being on the lookout for other people. We all have the ability to do something um, to help to help indiv- these individuals, and so um, it, and it doesn't even mean necessarily that you're volunteering at one of the one of the the, the places where they're the safe house is the word I was looking for. It doesn't even mean that it, it you can do. Everybody can do something, even if it's giving or or being on the lookout for for signs and things that she talked about towards. Uh, I think it was towards the end there. Um, so everybody has the ability. So those are the two. Yeah, and if you're specifically in Ohio, I would encourage. And this really stood out to you. I would encourage you maybe check into possibly volunteering for rehab and see what you can do. See if there's something tangible that you can do, or you know, see how if you're not in Ohio, if you're not around the Akron area, check into some of the local um, organizations, local nonprofits that work with human trafficking and volunteer something with that or volunteer or whatever it may be. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, if this episode has helped expand your opinion, we would love for you to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on, um, on Apple Podcasts. You know, it's one of the best ways that you can keep up with some of the conversations that we're having weekly and we always love to challenge and expand you whether that's something creativity or as this week in human trafficking or um, diversity or leadership or personal growth or just hearing incredible stories the best way to make sure that you don't miss any of those conversations is by subscribing to this podcast on your podcast player whether it's overcast which is one that i use or apple podcast google play or whatever it is we would also love for you to leave a rating and write a review of the podcast specifically on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way that we can expand these conversations. We believe that, especially whenever we're talking about things like today, it's conversations that need to happen. And so the best way that you can help us expand that is through leaving ratings and writing reviews on Apple Podcasts or just sharing it on social media or just sending it to people that you know. You know, there's sometimes to where we have conversations and we just like, man, these are such good conversations that we need to let other people know about them and so we'll specifically send that's another way that and make sure and check out the resource of the week it'll be in the show notes um it is every week we have a new one and you can see those in the show notes this week free to lead podcast 
check it out there. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Learner's Corner Podcast. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is Todd Hixenbaugh. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.